0: Hello everyone and welcome to the LifeSphere podcast. Today's guest is Nancy J. Kelly, JD, a nationally recognized executive who has driven key strategic initiatives in science and medicine for more than 20 years. She has a deep understanding of the healthcare, life science, and research fields and an in-depth knowledge of the related legal, business, government, nonprofit, and academic sectors in New York City and across the country. Ms. Kelly's prior leadership history includes work in scientific institutions, life science companies, and life science real estate development. She's a founding member of NYC Builds BioPlus. She is a member of the founding leadership team of the International Scientific Project, GP Wright, and the Associated Center of Excellence for Engineering Biology, and has helped to launch the Biodesign Challenge. Ms. Kelly was the founding executive director of the New York Genome Center, and a lead executive in the development of the East River Science Park, now Alexandria Life Science Center in Manhattan. She has overseen major development projects for clients such as Harvard's McLean Hospital, NIH, John Hopkins, and MIT. Ms. Kelly also acquired years of experience in growing life sciences companies from startup through development into established enterprises as a former corporate securities partner at the Boston Law Firm, of Doerr, now Wilmer Hale. Ms. Kelly has served on boards for the New York Genome Center, the Jackson Library, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and the Whitehead Institute. She holds an A.S. from Manchester Community College, a B.A. from Yale College, a J.D. from Harvard Law School, and an M.P.P. from Harvard Kennedy School. She has also been appointed. She has been appointed both a White House Fellow and a Truman Scholar. We're so excited, Nancy, for you to join us. Very impressive. Today, I really wanted to kind of have a conversation with you um, again, just, a, just a, a, a really storied path and, and career uh, that you have and really a lot uh, of accomplishments. Um, one of the things um, I have you having quoted as saying is that um, technology not only changes Uh, the way the world works, but it also changes the way we work in the world. So I thought maybe you could just give a little bit of insight into your thought process and perspective behind that.
1: Yeah, so really technology offers us new tools um, so that we can work differently, new ways of looking at the world, um, seeing the world through new eyes, and it really does influence the way that we work and behave on so many different levels. And I think you can see that really clearly just looking at the whole genomics era that started in the early 2000s and the completely uh, revolutionary change in the standard of care for patients as a result of the sequencing of the first human genome. and and so, obviously, that's a way that we work in the world, right? Um, the other that we're seeing right now with all of us, we're wearing Fitbits, we're wearing Aura rings, you know, um, all of these uh, mobile diagnostic tools, which are allowing us to track our health care, to take an active participation in keeping ourselves healthy and well and improving our quality of life. Um, that's only going to continue and speed up. Um, and so those technological advances, you know, uh, changed the way the world works by giving us those tools, but it changes
0: the way we behave in the world as well. Most definitely. Very, very good points to made. So some might say, um, and as you have said, that many refer to the changes we are experiencing as a fourth industrial revolution, um, in a way characterized by a fusion of technologies that's blurring the lines between the physical, digital, and biological realms. So maybe you can just add a little bit more about your thoughts in that space.
1: Yeah, you know, there's two um, quotes that I absolutely love and that I think really encapsulate um, everything that we're going through right now, in terms of the rapid pace of technological change and advancement in science and biology, which is making the age that we live in one of the most exciting in history, in my mind. Um, and the first was Craig Ventner, you know, who obviously was a partner in the sequencing of the first human genome. And he said, if the 20th century was a century of physics, The 21st century will be the century of biology um and steve jobs agreed with him he said the biggest innovations of the 21st century are at the intersection of biology and technology and we're only 20 years from the time that both of them made those statements and we are already well into that shift and we can see it in the life sciences and healthcare market which is dynamic changing evolving year over year, you know, driven
0: by rapid technological change. Yeah, and and that clock is really, as you said, rapidly accelerating. So one of the things um, some people might assume is that it's a bit of a straight line if you want to be in the life sciences. So you may go out of, you know, junior high and find yourself in high school and automatically already know you would like to be in the research space or you might want to be bringing products to market. But I know that's not you know, the way that your path has has uh, taken uh, to get to where you are today. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how it is that you ended up to kind of be involved in all these very exciting, um, truly transformational uh, initiatives um, and how you, you know, how you came to be here.
1: Yeah, so that's a very long story. <laughs> and, you know, I have to say for some people, it is a straight line and that's fine. Um, for me, it was not. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it's really important to allow yourself the freedom to pursue your passion. And what I did was I, I worked very hard at everything I was doing. But what I really did was wander around doing things that I was intensely interested in. Um, and Now, if I look back, it looks like a straight path, but it really wasn't. It was a very crooked path that sometimes took turns that I didn't know where they were going or how I was going to get back on the path. Um, But um, I, I do think it's very important to be driven by passion. I think it's important to be driven by purpose. I've always told the people who work for me, I'm not your boss. I've never had a boss in my life. I've only had a mission. Um, meaning my work is my mission and I don't need to be told what to do. I can do it and I will do it. You know, you, you drive it when you're that, um, interested in it. So I think that is extremely important, you know, pursue your passion and have a mission in life and the rest really does fall into place
0: that. I, I think that's really, really a, a great way to go about how it is that you go through the day and, and your life, right? So it's not necessarily work per se, it's actually a passion, a mission, a goal. right um, So I think one of the things um, you and I have had the good fortune to have our paths cross, um, and, and I do truly believe sometimes that paths cross for a reason, um is um, the Builds Bio initiatives that, the Builds Bio Plus initiatives that you are working on. I know you started in the New York City area um, in the early part of 2018. And now as we're in 2022, um, you and I had uh, the opportunity most recently uh, to start something here in the greater Philadelphia area. So, um, I find it an extremely compelling and, and very innovative kind of concept of collaboration. So maybe you could just give us an idea of where do you see, because it sounds like you do have this this ability for longer term vision. Where do you see kind of all of this as it intersects the the components of the life sciences, and and how you know can we all join together behind this to to kind of build that better future.
1: Well, you know, I mean, just to step back and give a little bit of context. In 2018, uh, a group of us that had been working on life science development in New York City for about 20 years, um, got together and really were commiserating about the fact that the progress was not fast enough and that something needed to be done to raise the visibility. And this was especially um, important in the development of new laboratory space in New York at that time because uh, we had um, created a number of incubators that were graduating large numbers of startup companies, but they had nowhere to go in New York because there was no private lab space available. And in New York, of course, the real estate market is huge Uh, and the life science industry is a blip on the radar screen. Uh, And so for most of the large developers in New York City, they really weren't taking notice of the need for lab space and they didn't have any knowledge of what scientists needed in the lab space, um, the regulatory requirements for building it. Um, and how to maintain it. And so there was only the specialized developer, Alexandria, that was uh, here in New York at the time. So we held a symposium that was designed to bring the life sciences and the real estate communities together to envision the future using biology in New York City. Uh, And we conceived it as a full day of discussion from eight to four with breakfast, lunch and a reception at the end of the day. And everyone said, this is never gonna work. Real estate people don't come to meetings for more than an hour and life science people won't talk to real estate people. But the truth is it really captured imagination. And we had 275 people at the Academy of Sciences here in New York, and it was sold out. And everyone uh, was very excited about the discussion that had started. So in 2019, the founding members um, of the symposium formed a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, and we have conducted educational programs, um, online programs, uh, tours, uh, receptions. We've written research reports over the last five years. And um, of course, when the pandemic started, um, we were extremely nervous because we were a startup and how were we going to keep ourselves going? So we pivoted to online programming and it was very successful because we were one of the um, only venues that was providing that kind of information. And so everyone tuned in. So we continued to grow over the last five years, even during the pandemic. Um, and the market has grown as well during the pandemic uh, the life science industry really captured the imagination of the world with the development of new vaccines and life-saving treatments and diagnostic tools um and all of the investment that was flowing into life sciences at that time really meant the explosion in the number of companies that were receiving investment the number of uh, real estate development uh, developers that were raising lo- funds for building lab space. And um, and so today where we are in 2022, is we have a very thriving market, which is undergoing a cyclical readjustment at the moment, but that's nothing new for this market. And, uh, and it will continue to grow just as we've talked about, we're in the century of biology. And um, technology change is not slowing down and it will continue to require specialized facilities. So Philadelphia happens to be a place where many of our members, um, our New York members, both corporate and individual, numbering well over 100 members now are doing business. And they thought with all the innovation in Philly, we should do an inaugural symposium down there. And so with your help on the steering committee, and we're very grateful to you for all of your assistance, we were able to bring the scientists, the institutions, the venture capitalists, really the entire ecosystem in Philly to talk about what is different down there. And the reason it's important is because, um, you know, President Biden just announced last week a national biotechnology and biomanufacturing initiative, which I've been working on um, for over 10 years in terms of trying to bring this to the attention of the policymakers to keep the U.S. in a competitive advantage in the world. So I'm really happy this took place. This means um, the continued growth and development and increased policy emphasis on biology throughout the country, Um, And it means that each of the subclusters will have a, you know, kind of a specific expertise that will set them apart. And by linking the different subclusters from New York City to Southern Connecticut to New Jersey to Philadelphia, we will be able to allow the flow of communication uh, and connections to increase activity, transactions and growth.
0: Yeah, I love the way that you're kind of pulling together that idea of collaboration because, you know, patients uh, don't care how many people it took. They just need it all to come together to help to bring that therapy to them. So some of the things uh, I think that are uh, going on in the Philadelphia area center around some advancements and um, technologies uh, and clinical success in in the cell and gene therapy uh space. In fact, some folks are kind of labeling it Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if, you know, talking about innovation and evolution, maybe just um share a little bit of your thoughts um about how the industry is going to continue to evolve uh as a as a, as a result of these technological and clinical successes.
1: Yeah, so um just to review a couple of the ones that were actually introduced by the scientists and discussed at the Philly Symposium, um, we have Luxterna, which is an in vivo gene therapy for inherited retinal dystrophy, um, meaning that people will have total blindness by the time they're 40. Um, But two ophthalmologists at the University of of Pennsylvania commercialized a company called Spark Therapeutics. And this technology which treats this um, and the original 20 patients that were treated in phase three clinical trials have improved their vision three years later. Um, And but the, you know, the downside of this is that the cost uh, of this treatment is a million dollars for two eyes. Um, and then we have chimeria, which is a treatment that uses the patient's own T-cells uh, to recognize and attack cancerous cells. And this has been used to treat a young woman uh, with ALL whose remission has lasted 11 years. And it's the first real case where there sounds like there's a cure for cancer. Um, and now Novartis is offering the treatment at a cost of $475,000. So the I think the technological advancements are here to stay. Uh, there was a venture capitalist that was talking about that at the symposium um, and really believes that this is going to become part of the standard of care. But we have to figure out how the these exciting discoveries will be able to be made universally uh, available. Um, we can't, you know, People are not going to be able to pay a million dollars a person for these treatments. Insurance companies will not be able to reimburse for that kind of cost. Um, So how do we offset the high cost of the techniques to make them affordable and accessible? And how do we offset the sometimes serious side effects that are going along? Of course, that will happen with continued evolution of the technology.
0: I 100% agree. And I think one of the themes in a lot of this is, I don't want to use the word convergence because I think it's overused sometimes, but technology is really facilitating um, advancements now. And I know that you have worked with a lot of technology. And I think maybe um, some thoughts from your perspective of what is the influence that it is having on life sciences? I, I think there's a lot of it, but your perspective.
1: You know, I mean, the thing that I am the most excited about is um, not only how technology is changing healthcare and our therapeutic approach to medicine, but how it is opening up all kinds of new energy, uh, new uh, industries, from new materials to energy to um, advanced diagnostic testing to syn- synthetic biology. Um, where, you know, companies are actually creating compounds like palm oil that will help us to stop cutting the rainforest down, you know, tissue engineering that is transforming the way that we are um, able to use, uh, transform biologically active materials into functional tissue, wearable technologies, which I've also already mentioned. And all of this is really creating an emphasis on how we use, we, we, we change from the use of chemistry to the use of biology in order to feed, fuel, and heal the world. And today you're seeing investment firms and accelerators like SOSV and IndieBio who are investing in the new biotech to transform the planet and the way we live. Companies like Ginkgo Bioworks, you know, their genome factory is basically transforming the future. Um, they were at the summit that President Biden, you know, held last week. Uh, and just a few of the companies that they've invested in, you know, TomTex, creating plastic-free and 100% biodegradable alternative to synthetic and animal leathers. Bosque Food, using mushrooms to create cuts of meat. Um, NatCo is a, is a actually a Chilean company Uh, that is um, moving from animal-based food products to plant-based and was the first food company to have a billion-dollar valuation. In 2021, it was announced amongst the world's most innovative companies. Um, And then companies like Opentron's, uh, which is here in New York and is also a unicorn that basically has transformed a simple pipetting robotic machine into a high-throughput diagnostic Uh, test for COVID-19, running 15,000 tests a week. So the thing I'm most excited about is I really believe in 50 years, many of the products we will use will have a biological component and it will be as varied as apparel, footwear, interiors, automotive architecture, and it will influence the way we live and influence the way we work.
0: Yeah, it's so compelling the way that you're describing it. I happen to also wear another hat as a CIO for a uh, startup biotech making plant-based therapeutics um in the biosimilar space, if you will. And and it's just it's technology that's been around, but yet it's it's underutilized, and I think that's what we're seeing is sort of this convergence across um One of the things that I think that technology is also facilitating is a little bit more of a move to the idea of precision and patient-centric medicine. Mm -hmm. So really focusing where a patient, not all patients, but you as the patient, what is it that you need? How is it that we can really focus on delivering what the the results that you need and. um, I think that um, the conversation around what's that dynamic look like between maybe the construction or the concept of facilities today versus where we may see that shift as we look at a more patient centered patient focused. um, Concept and delivery.
1: So just to kind of review what was driving all of this um, from, you know, blockbuster one-size-fits-all to kind of precision medicine is the Human Genome Project, which, of course, was one of the greatest scientific accomplishments in history. Um, It took 13 years, and it took $3 billion to generate the first human sequence, and today, a human genome can be sequenced for less than $1,000 in less than 24 hours. And what this means is it can be done at a patient's bedside and provide a doctor with that patient's genetic blueprint, which says what they are predisposed to and what kinds of mutations or regulatory alterations may be causing their disease. Um, And... Um, And this is very exciting because now medicines are being developed, which will be tailored toward that patient and be more effective for them. Uh, But it also means that the places where these therapeutics are developed or scaled up and where they're administered have to become closer together. So you're going to, I think, be seeing a fusion of the research and delivery environments um, in, in facilities where you have both research and clinical applications taking place you know, side by side. And of course now um, we have CRISPR-Cas9 for gene editing and there's a lot of work going on and approved therapies coming uh, through the line using those techniques. Um, And so it really is going to change uh, the way the facilities are. That, And you see it in Philadelphia. Um, You know, you see the cell manufacturing facility being developed by Spark uh, Therapeutics downtown, um, close to where they need to be, close to where the hospitals are. um, Very important.
0: I think this kind of underpins uh, a big part of the conversation with regard to, um, and I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier in our conversation, which is, um, and you were kind of describing the, the, the dynamic, I guess, that was occurring in New York was just the lack of space, the lack of the correct space, right? Not right. the lack of space in general, but the correct space. And the life sciences require um, a significantly more, I'll call it regulated and stringent uh, facility um and i think that's a key point that maybe i kind of even as i listen to you talk about the fact that there is so much real estate people consider in new york and yet not enough and i i think and maybe you can comment um i think every uh area across the united states is probably experiencing a, a similar sort of challenge where there's this perception of real estate but yet
1: yeah i mean i think um you know, we talked about the insurance uh, challenges and the cost of these new treatments, but a number, another really important barrier uh, to you know kind of uh, overall application throughout the country is the difference between community hospitals and tertiary care hospitals and the training that um, providers have in those two different facilities. So. Many times, um, you know, the medical providers in a community hospital may not be trained on how to read a sequence and interpret a sequence and then apply that to and have the knowledge of how to apply that to this disease using all the latest research and papers that have been published in the area. Um, That's where our tertiary care Uh, facilities come in. But if these are going to be widely um, adopted so that we have uh, general newborn sequencing, which will show predisposition to disease and allow doctors to track that over the life of a patient to keep patients well, rather than just to treat disease, then we're going to need more and more providers that are skilled in this area and deeply trained on how to provide this kind of care
0: yeah and i think that whole mindset shift to prevention instead of treatment after the fact i think is i think one of the key components i think everyone's really hoping that we move our medical system from that sort of intervention and 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 more of the forward looking um so i think that one little point that i thought i'd share with you an uh, observation just across a bunch of conversations and and maybe we'll bring it around to uh, close up our conversation here. Um, I think one of the things I keep hearing is that while there's volumes of data, and I know, Nancy, you worked in the past in pulling together some really compelling data with regard to the New York real estate uh, and and the the spaces available for life sciences and whatnot, is um, with all of this, I think data is key in order to provide, you know, going back to our technology conversation, et cetera, the, the relevant data that is necessary in order to make these informed decisions. So while we have a fire hose of data available to us, not all of it's necessarily good data. Um, and I think data collection and focused data collection, really understanding what we need to know um, in order to capture it, I think is really critical to to help us uh, move yeah, this. Yeah, you
1: know, I mean, a lot of that comes down to healthcare uh, data and sharing of data. And the healthcare healthcare administration of data has traditionally been um, captured by large closed software systems. And we really need to change that. And I think that's some change that is coming down the line with some of the provisions in the new Infrastructure Act. But it's not going to be easy. And we need to find ways to um, allow these huge databases of information that we have to be able to communicate with each other so that we can find the patterns which will lead to new cures, but also lead to better patient um, treatments. uh, Because patients will be able to seamlessly accumulate their data over the course of their lifetime, which can be accessed by any provider who is treating them.
0: Yeah, I think that that's just so compelling. And of course, I'm a data person, so that's near and dear to my heart. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to um, kind of wrap it up a little bit here. I, we've touched on a whole list of really what I think to be very interesting, and compelling topics. So um, I wonder, one of the things I know a lot of people that listen, try and, and learn is a little bit maybe about yourself, something maybe um, we can't readily find, uh, you know, something that's fun or, or something that you've learned that um, you might want to talk a little bit about. Um, as we kind of come up through the end of our our conversation today. Yeah, you
1: know, I think that um, as I look back on my life, one of the things that has been the most fun is the um, wandering around the world that I've been able to do. So um, when I worked in the White House, you know, we went from Japan to Shanghai to Hong Kong during the period of the Beijing uprising. And then visited some of the camps in Cambodia, which were so devastating, and Thailand, and then I was in Moscow when Glasnost was happening, and um, really had an, a variety of very, very interesting experiences in the midst of all those historical happenings. Awesome. Um, and then more recently, you know, had the um, had the ability to go on safari in Africa. Uh, for three and a half weeks in 2013, which was absolutely mind-changing and blew through many of my fair barriers. I I flew over Victoria Falls in a helicopter and landed in the middle of the desert in a single-engine plane. And um, when we left, there were 10 lions that had come and laid in the tracks to say goodbye to us. Uh, And then I signed on as a crew member in the Virgin Islands, For two and a half weeks to sail. And then recently, uh, just two weeks ago, um, returned from hiking in the Dolomites, which was just spectacular.
0: Wow. Wow. That's really something. Um, So Nancy, I really just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to join us today on the Life Sphere podcast. It's been my pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I'd really like to just say thank you very much for all of your time and the conversation has really been something worthwhile.
1: Thank you, Kathleen. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be working with you.
0: Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of LifeSphere where we talk with leaders in the life science industry about what inspires them and how we all can work together because the patient is waiting. Please find us on Spotify, Pandora, and iHeartRadio. Like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we look forward to joining you on the next episode.